go. A special hello goes out to Director Media for the Boston Bruins alumni, Mr. Mark Boyan. Nice to see you, Marky. Welcome to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the home of behind-the-scenes interviews, stories, and memories that celebrate the heritage of the great game of hockey. The Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast is hosted by Mark Willand. WHA legend Larry Lund, WHA's 12th all-time leading scorer, is our guest on episode 36 of the PHA Podcast. Before becoming an original Houston Arrow at the age of 32, Lund played 12 outstanding seasons in the minors, mostly in the Western Hockey League with Seattle and Phoenix. With Gordie Howe and the Arrows, Lund centered the go-go line with Andre Heinz and Frank Hughes as the Arrows won the Avco Cup in 1974 and 1975. His best season was 1974-75 when he led the Arrows in points with 108 that was good for fifth overall in the WHA. He also played in the annual WHA All-Star Game and had a great postseason as well. In his WHA career, Lund recorded 426 points in 459 regular season games and added 65 points in 59 postseason contests. In addition to his stellar playing career, Larry is well known as the founder of the Okanagan Hockey School, the longest running hockey school in North America. Larry is a member of the BC, as in British Columbia, Hockey Hall of Fame. Larry was a great interview. He takes you behind the scenes of those colorful Houston Arrows teams, and especially his roommate, Gordy Howe. And we greatly appreciate the letters and great reviews. We do the show for you fans, so we appreciate your feedback. Our audience has grown tremendously since we began last year, and we're very grateful for your support. Now... Let's talk classic hockey with Larry Lund. Well, we have back on the show Larry Lund, and we're thrilled to have him. He's a number 12 all-time leading scorer in the World Hockey Association, won two Avco Cups with the Houston Arrows, won four other Cups throughout pro hockey. A lot of people know him from his founding of the Okanagan Hockey School, of course, and he's a member of the British Columbia Hockey Hall of Fame, number 13, Larry Lund. Thanks so much for being with us, Larry. Good. Well, you're welcome. I'm uh, excited to chat with you. Larry, some, good, some good memories from the WHA days. <laughs> Absolutely. And before you get there, though, um, you start out with Edmonton and then end up in Muskegon, the IHL. And you really kind of hit your stride in the Western Hockey League. Now, that's a real underrated league in hockey history because at the time there were either six then eventually 12 teams in National Hockey League. A lot of real good players played in the Western League. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the Western League in general as in the caliber of play in the league? Yeah, I sure could. So when I went there in 1963-64 season, uh, ironically, Bud Poyle was the coach and general manager and his son is now the general manager of the uh, Nashville Predators. So that's a little bit of mm -hmm. history or trivia. But when I first went there, there was a requirement to carry two rookies on the team. And, and from there on up, it was seasoned veterans who was winding down their career, whether it's in the NHL or, or whatever. So there was some really quality hockey players. And there was, as you said earlier, there's only six teams in the NHL at that time. So um, it was a, a league with a lot of experience and maybe not quite as much speed as, you know, as say the central league at that time, but the, the experience you know, from goaltenders on out was, uh, was tremendous. You end up in Seattle in 65, 66, and you've got a strong team there. I was curious about now that Seattle's on the horizon for the national hockey league, what was the fan support like uh, in Seattle? What was the hockey environment like back then? Yeah, it was good. And the, we had a, it was just after the World Fair in Seattle. So they built a, the Seattle uh, Civic Center. So we had a state-of-the-art arena to play. I think it held around 12,000 people. So it was probably nicer than the majority of the NHL rinks at that time. So mm -hmm. we were fortunate to, you know, to have that facility. And also, we were fortunate to have some really good teams. We won two uh, Lester Patrick Cups in a row in, in Seattle. So, uh, good, good, strong team, and, and lots of competition in, in the league too. 
What would be, uh, if you look back at the Seattle Totems, what was your biggest rival in the league at that time? Uh, Portland, the Portland Buckaroos, they were just down the freeway from us. And so there was this, a natural a geographical uh, rivalry as well as an on-ice rivalry. So, And um, Hal Lakel was a coach of the of the Portland Buckaroos, a former mm-hmm. NHL player and, you know, a very successful coach. He went on to coach in the National League after that. So they had, you know, a strong, strong team as, as we did. And the, the Vancouver Canucks were in the league at that time too. And they had, you know, some, some great hockey teams there. So, but it, overall, uh, the Portland Buckaroos were by far the, the biggest rivalry. One player that was a legend in the league and, on your championship teams was often the, the leading scorer, Guile Field, Fielder. I don't really know much about him, except for the fact that he was certainly one of the great players in the history of the league. What type of player was he like? Um, Guile, he, w- he was a wizard on the ice. You know, he's a nice skater, uh, handled the puck well, you know, wasn't, uh, obviously wasn't uh, a physical player. He was, you know, fairly small in stature, but he was shifty and uh, he could, uh, you know, move the puck around and, and scored some goals too. But primarily, he was a he, he was a you know a playmaker. Mm-hmm. Larry, when you look at these rosters, a lot of future NHL and WHA players on them. Seattle, in particular, in Phoenix. How was it that you ended up in sixty nine seventy as to be a Phoenix Roadrunner? Uh, I was in Seattle at that the, the previous four years, and uh, things had gone a little. Uh, sideways as far as my career was concerned and uh, uh, so they made a trade uh, Tommy McVie I don't know if you you probably know that name he Mm -hmm. coached in Washington and played he was a yeah he was a great minor leaguer so they traded Tommy McVie for myself and I went to Phoenix and probably the best one of the best moves I've ever made in my life you know we went there and uh, played in Phoenix for three years and had a great team and a you know, really a nice area to to play in too. So we enjoyed it in, in Phoenix uh, for the three years I was there. Absolutely, and you become uh, synonymous with two other players, Andre Heinz and Frank Hughes, uh, the Go Go line, which we'll come into the story mm-hmm. later. How did that line come together in, in in your stay in Phoenix? And talk a little bit about the the chemistry that uh, that you three had. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, we, we were put together just at the last part of training camp. We were in Peterborough, Ontario. We were trained with the Toronto Maple Leafs. We were a farm team of theirs. And, um, you know, from the, one of the first practices on, things just seemed to, there was a chemistry and a, a synergy there with the three of us that, uh, you know, I don't think anybody put a lot of thought into, you know, when they put the line together. Mm-hmm. But uh, just from the first time on on the ice till um, you know till the end of our careers, we um, just had a chemistry that was uh, was phenomenal. So, so Larry, it's, it's interesting when you're playing for Phoenix, at least from a distance. You're playing in a, a excellent market at that time, a real strong hockey market for the Western League. Great weather, teams doing well, excellent line mates. You had. If you were, I guess my my question is, uh, for a lot of guys, playing in the Western Hockey League under those circumstances is a good enough league in and of itself. If that's if that's where it all ended, in other words, it was a good experience there uh, in in the Western League. It wasn't just uh, like slugging in, in the minors and everything. It was a it was a good place for you to play, and you seemed to be pretty happy there. And certainly, you were productive. Yeah, you know, and. Uh... I guess another part of it was too. You know, my salary was comparable to an, an average NHL salary at that time too. So that was a factor. I was being compensated very well. And another part of the reason I wanted to stay in Phoenix for the three years I did, I was I was working on my business degree from Arizona State University. So oh. I did that during the off season, and I'd take a couple classes during the season, evening classes or whatever. So, and my wife was working on her master's at the time too. So that it really worked out well for us for that whole, the whole overall environment it wasn't just hockey, but, uh, and we made a lot of good friends. Absolutely. In, in Phoenix as well. One guy I had to ask you about, he was kind of 
a colorful character, kind of a mystery to me, but a, a colorful guy uh, who later became an actor, Howie Young. Yeah. What's uh, <laughs> well, well, from your early description, I pretty well knew who you were <laughs> you talking about. Yeah, Howie's our teammate uh, for two years in, in Phoenix, and uh, he, um, Howie had, you know, turned over a bit of a new leaf in life. He was, uh, he quit drinking completely, and, uh, you know, when he came, when he came to Phoenix, he was a, a great asset to our team and, a, you know, and a great teammate. And I think you touched on the skating ability. I don't think anybody in the game, the NHL, Western league, American league skated better than Howie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's always when you talk to people who saw him in Detroit and everybody talked about his potential, but, uh, the, his mind wasn't, uh, and his lifestyle habits weren't quite there at that point. Um, speaking of, of, of tough guys and everything, Larry, your penalty minutes, I don't know if it was by design or not, and your last two years at Phoenix really, really jump, as do your points. So you were always a consistent scorer, but you ended up scoring over 90 points in your last two years and getting over 140 penalty minutes. Was there, was there a correlation between the two? Well, yeah, I think that for for me to be successful, you know, I had to play with a you know with with a bit of passion and some aggression too. So that, you know, I think is sort of indicative of how I was playing is you know how physical I was playing too. So they kind of went hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And I think the records kind of would, would, the statistics would bear that out. Absolutely. So now at the end of the seventy one seventy two season. Something happens in the world of hockey, and that is a new league is born, the World Hockey Association, and they place a team in Houston, coached by and managed by your old teammate in the Western League, Bill Deneen. How did the whole, when did you first, uh, when did Bill first reach out to you, and how did that whole uh, scenario unfold? Yeah, well, that's a, a bit of an interesting story in itself. Um, you know, they had a, and I hadn't communicated with Bill really about the WHA. We were still playing in Phoenix and, you know, really involved there. But the, the, the WHA had a priority agreement where you could draft or protect four guys. And I was one of the four that Bill Deneen protected. And so when I saw that later on, so I thought, you know, if they were going to use one of their four picks to protect me, that they would certainly be interested in you know, in, in signing me and, uh, and ultimately the whole, the whole line, Frank Hughes and Andre Heights were, was drafted by, by Houston. And, uh, we ended up playing there, but I'll have to, I'll tell you an interesting story. Um, so anyway, um, I had gotten an agent and lawyer and represented me and, and Houston were, you know, had come up to Penticton where my, my summer home was and, mm-hmm. They uh, had offered us a contract. My lawyer had come up, and they had made arrangements to meet in Penticton. So the the negotiations were going on, and, you know, I guess the team was starting at a lower point than we wanted to end up at. So, and and at that point, I had belonged belonged to Toronto, and they had a, you know, in their center, it was was Normie Allman, Daryl Sittler, Jimmy Harrison and Davy Keon, so that's right. a pretty tough, right. <laughs> tough, tough lineup to crack. But anyway, they lost a couple of players to the WHA, and so uh, there was a call, and I we had said to uh, Bill in Houston that you know we were negotiating with Toronto, and you know they had made us a pretty nice offer. And I think Bill might have thought maybe my lawyer was just you know trying to push the envelope here to get the the salary up. Mm-hmm. So the phone rang down in the lobby, and it was for Don Harris, who was my attorney. And Bill happened to know that Don was out. So he picked the phone up and just said, hello. And uh, <laughs> the guy on the other end was Jim Gregory, the general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs. <laughs> and and uh, so Bill made up a fictitious name. I guess the guy said, well, who am I speaking to? And he said, well, I'll have Don call you. So I guess at that point, Houston realized that Toronto was, was serious and I think my contract probably uh, the next offer was a third more than, than than the previous one so it was a bit of a of a coincidence that he would be down in the lobby and I, I, I was 
I loved that story. I got a big kick out of it, and plus it helped my bank account at the end of the year, too. Yeah, it's amazing. When I talk to guys, especially you guys who played back then, sometimes just the, the, the little things like that, the little twist of fate, yeah. luck, and coincidence, yeah. and how much of an impact it has on your, your life going forward. Yeah, no, it isn't. And there's a, there's a note, side note to that. Toronto did offer me a, a good contract and a guaranteed number of games, but I said... Uh, I was sort of made my mind up, and I wasn't changing it at that point. Mm-hmm. Well, it was a interesting first season in the WHA, I have to imagine. But you have a unique situation with the Arrows where the team is populated with a lot of real good character veteran guys. You have your your teammates from uh, from, from Phoenix, but you also have guys like Paul Papil and John Shella yeah. and Wayne Rutledge. Talk a little bit about, about your Gordon Lavoisier. So talk yeah, a little bit about your year. Yeah. And Ted Taylor, we have to throw him oh, of in Of course, there. Teddy Hall. Taylor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Murray yeah. Hall. So this is yeah. a real uh, old-school, hard-nosed team. But I always get the impression when talking to guys from that team in that era that it had to be a very close-knit group. Yeah, it was. And the one player who wasn't there, and we can get into this a little later, is Andre Heinz. He decided at the last minute to stay in Phoenix, so he didn't come and join us. And we'll talk about that a little later on the impact he had. But mm-hmm. it was, and I think what happened, Bill Deneen is a very shrewd uh, person. And he had, if you looked at our lineup, he had played with most everybody on that team. So he was able to, you know, to know what the players were more than just from a hockey point of view. He wanted character players and and it was mainly guys that he had played with or coached against. And so he had a leg up on most of the other coaches and general managers in the league at that time because, you know, he had just probably only been two or three years out of playing and then he'd been coaching previously. So that was, I think, a big advantage for Bill to, you know, to have that knowledge. What was your impression of the league in year one? I mean, I'm sure that there were some some things that weren't running quite smoothly in, in in the first year. I mean, it is the first year of a, of a team, but what was your whole feeling that, that first year? Was it something that you said to yourself, yeah, I'm happy I made this decision? Or were there moments when uh, things got a little crazy? You had to have a lot of travel coming from Houston. Yeah. Um, talk a little about some of the challenges in year one. Yeah, yeah. Well, just to, to back up just a bit, when I really decided I was going to go to Houston, it was the day that Bobby Hall signed with the Winnipeg Jets. You know, and oh, I yeah. talked to Bobby a lot of times about that. And I, I don't think, I'm not sure, but I don't think I would have made the decision to go if, if he hadn't signed. You know, and I and I said to Bobby, I owe you a, a huge mm-hmm. debt of gratitude for signing. So that was sort of the form, the you know, the beginning of it. But yeah, we. Um, we traveled, we had our own plane. It was not a jet. So we did a lot of, we was probably in the air as much as we were on the ground. But so we become very close as a team. And you, you know what, Mark? I didn't really, once we got playing, I got sort of wrapped up in the whole thing. And I didn't really care and think a lot about what the other teams were doing. Teams were moving here and folding there and whatever they were doing. I didn't really care. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we were, you know, our ownership was solid at the time. And you know, so we were just in the moment and wanting to win, and we did. We did fairly well the first year. We didn't have any big name players on our team. We didn't have the Bobby Halls or the Mark Tardifs, you know, J.C. Trombleys. We just had a good, solid team, and we we won the first round. We lost the second round to Winnipeg, but we were just concentrating on playing and you know doing the best we could do. Going to next year, of course. Something very big happens in the history of hockey, and that is that the Howe family joins the team. And Andre Heinz comes up from Phoenix. Yeah, so I'm glad you. I'm glad you mentioned Andre Heinz because I was going to. I'll get into that a little later. Yeah. Because uh, so now you go from a a good solid team to a very very strong uh, team that could, could compete in either league. Um, talk a little bit about, uh, first of all, the, the arrival of Gordie Howe, how you heard about that and what your reaction was to that. Yeah. Well, it goes back Doug Harvey was our assistant coach. And I think Doug Harvey was the one who suggested drafting Mark and Marty. And some people, uh, I read that it was Colleen Howe's idea, but I think it was Doug Harvey's, him and Bill were at, uh, at the draft and Doug, Doug was a very intelligent guy and he said, well, let's draft him. And then they phoned up. 
talked to Gordy, and Gordy said, well, how would you like to have a third how on the team? Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of how that that happened. So if you think about it, out of those the three hows and Andre Heinz, that really changed our whole team. So now we get two Hall of Fame players, and we get Andre Heinz, who Gordy Howe told me, Andre Heinz is one of the best left wingers ever played with or ever seen. Mm-hmm. You know, and he was... Unfortunately, Andre had a serious knee injury in his fourth year there, and he couldn't play anymore. But he he is an amazing hockey player, and uh, you know, people talk about Anders Hedberg and and uh, you know, on that line, well, Andre was as good as anyone either one of those two, Olaf uh, Nilsson or uh, Anders Hedberg. Not taking anything away from them, but Andre was a phenomenal hockey player. So now we get Mark and and Gordy and Marty, and then we got Andre Heinz. So now you got you got four impact players on your team, and it was it was evident, and obvious what that did to our team. We went the next two years, won the championship. I think with uh, you know we won the league and the championship. It wasn't like we finished in fourth place and won it. We dominated the league and won the championship. And Frankie Hughes, he scored forty two goals one year and forty eight goals the next year. Right. And I don't we don't hear a lot about those guys because they were earlier in the league, but those those two players and and Mark Howe, you know, he he, was, he played forward when he first came, right? And he was he was an amazing hockey player, you know. So we got two lines, and we have Teddy Taylor, uh, Gordy Labossi, and uh, Murray Hall. So we had three lines that could com- compete with any any team anywhere, you know. And so right. yeah, and the WHA yeah WHA where a lot of teams struggled with depth you guys had depth yeah. both up front in goal and in goal yeah. as well so yeah yeah, yeah. we had Wayne Rutledge and Don McLeod and then Ron Graham after that but but uh, you know the, the, two, the two years or the three years you know that team was really dominant I think we won the league four years in a row and then won two AFCO Cups but right. it, was a, it was a pretty solid hockey team and you know we had the right coaching Bill Deneen and uh, Doug Harvey you know doesn't get any better than that <laughs> absolutely now thinking of going back to Gordy for a second I got to know Gordy because we worked together in Hartford with the Whalers for uh, six mm-hmm. years back in the 80s yeah. and early 90s and he he loved that Arrows team uh, he had such fond memories of, of all of you guys. What was he like, or what was it like to have Gordy Howe as a teammate? Yeah, and I also room with Gordy too, so that's in my line eventually. So there's, you know, that's as good as it gets for in, in that respect. But you know what, Gordy come in, and I think he he was so motivated by having Mark on the wing and Marty on the ice and. And people told me who had seen Gordy play the last seven or eight years, they felt the first two, three years in Houston, he played better than they'd seen him ever play in the last, you know, six, eight years in, in the NHL. Right. He was just, he was amazing. Practiced hard, worked hard, and and he was a great teammate too. You know, he wanted he wanted to win and, and do whatever he needed to do to win. So, uh, you know, and obviously it just changed the whole, elevated the whole level of our team, you know, you go into a city, Toronto or Vancouver and the media there, and you know, that was because of Gordy, you know. Absolutely. Uh, Larry, when I think, uh, first of all, if you look at your statistics at the time, obviously your scoring goals, your playmaking is incredible, a lot of assists, and when I think back at you, though, I remember they and maybe my memory's playing tricks on me. I remember you had a, a relatively big paddle on your stick. Um, yeah, I did. <laughs> and <laughs> and yeah. Uh, you were also quite proficient on the, on, the, uh, on, on the face-off circle. So talk a little bit about that, if you would. Yeah, I did. I had a, a stick that I think it, the blade actually challenged the regulations. And, you know, I think it was right there at the time. And on the face-offs, I had a philosophy from, for years that, like in football, possession is where everything starts from. You got possession, somebody you either have to give it away or somebody else to take it from you. Mm-hmm. So for me, there is no better way to start, you know, a shift on the ice and possession of the puck. So if you can draw the puck back, which we did most of the time, to your defense, you've got the puck. So you're a step up on everybody. Uh, and at our time, you know, we didn't have video or not a lot of video. And there wasn't the emphasis on the individual skills at that time. So I was a little ahead of guys 
in terms of taking face-offs. Now, every you know, people really focus and concentrate on it. And I don't think I could be nearly as successful in today's <laughs> hockey because the, the the opposition sort of on the same same wavelengths as I was as far as you know wanting to go in and win the face-off. And every time I went in there, it was it doesn't matter if it was in practice or in the game. My goal was to win it, you know, and uh, having a little bigger stick didn't hurt either. Absolutely. So, Larry, what's interesting about your career is that you did spend many years playing in the minor leagues, playing in the Western League. So by the time you get to the WHA, you're in your 30s. And back in those days, a lot of guys were winding down at at that point. There wasn't the emphasis on conditioning and longevity that there is now. So, but you end up going the opposite direction. Uh, You start to escalate. Now you're playing at at the highest level uh, that you had played at in WHA, and your scoring is really taking off. What do you attribute uh, your success later in your career to? Well, Mark, the thing is that People probably don't know that I didn't start skating until I was 13 years old. And wow. I lived in a warm climate, and there was no outdoor ice, very little. So, and and I guess the 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 thing about me is a lot of people I had a different kind of a skating style. So, a lot of people thought I was was a real slow skater, but you know I could skate not with the Mark Howes, but with, above average with anybody. But it didn't look like that on the ice. So that was kind of the the uh, opinion of the scouts and the people that uh, watched the minor leagues that, that I wasn't fast enough. That uh, if you got the puck and people can't take it away from you, it doesn't matter how fast you are. Right. Well, well. So, uh, so that kind of, you know, was kind of the the opinion that maybe my speed wasn't up to, my skating speed wasn't up to the NHL mm-hmm. level because as I played, like I played with a lot of guys who went on to play in the National League forwards and centermen and they didn't have the statistics that I had but uh, you know they were probably a little quicker skating and and they looked like they were skating a lot faster so anyway that was kind of what the what the uh, the consensus was and that was fine too well you certainly <clears throat> disproved any doubters in 74-75 first of all you win the cup in, in 74 against the Chicago Cougars uh, what was that series like? Was there? Uh, did you play one game in kind of like a, a weird rink in Chicago that year? Uh, excuse me. Uh, in in the finals, did you actually? And I, I I should know this, but did you actually win the cup in Houston, or did you win it in Chicago? We won that in Houston, and I don't know why we played. I think we played the first two games. It might have been one in four games. I'm not sure. Yeah. So for whatever reason, I'm not sure on that, but I know we did win the cup in Houston, and we played in a. It was a rink in a shopping center, Ranhurst Arena, I think it was called, or shopping center, and it was, a, you know. But again, we didn't care about all that stuff. You know, what, you know, I hear a lot of people saying, oh, it only held 3,000 people or whatever. We were focused on what we're doing on the ice and winning. So, mm-hmm. you know, that was sort of trivia to me. But, well, you know, yeah, we, I, yeah, I do distinctly remember winning it at Houston. I got pictures of Teddy Taylor carrying the cup around the ice and, pictures in the locker room or whatever. So it's really a magical story as you uh, have the house and the team and then you go all the way. The next year you take it even to a higher level for yourself. It's a career high, 108 points. You're fifth in the league in scoring, 75 assists, and uh, just a terrific year for yourself. You also add a few kids. So you really reinvigorate the team. You had Terry Ruskowski, Rich Preston, Ron Graham, among others. Talk a little bit about the the young guys that came in and, and joined you on that second championship season. Yeah. Well, I think, again, that was Bill, Bill Deneen's philosophy, and he was a little bit ahead of himself in, in terms of uh, looking at teams because it's hard when you look at a team that we won the championship that, that second year in 73-74, and for Bill to make, and Bill's really a loyal fella, for him to make the decision to not stay with all the, the veterans was probably a very difficult decision for him to make. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he, and I think that's sometimes that happens to teams. They don't, they don't realize that and they don't change and get young quick enough. So he, uh, he had a good scouting system. He knew Terry Ruskowski, you know, Rich Preston, 
followed their careers, and mm-hmm. Ronnie Graham. And so, yeah, when I look back, I, it didn't seem really like Bill's nature to, to make that changes after the first championship team. You know, it just seemed like, well, we won and won the league fairly handily. Why, why make the changes? But he did, and they were changes that were... We're very good for the team, too. Oh, absolutely. What a team that was. And every year subsequent to that, you'd always add somebody, whether it be a Morris Lukowicz or a John mm-hmm. Tonelli or, or whatever. So we kept reinvigorating. The team was strong throughout. But going back to Gordy for one second, uh, still an intimidating force on the ice physically at that point. And can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, he was obviously... He's protecting his kids, but he's Gordy Howe, so uh, there's got to be a, if you can think back, a Gordy Howe story where he imposed his uh, will, if you will, because everybody I talked to, and I don't mean to get off on a, on a tangent, but yes. everybody I talked to who played with or against Gordy has a story that usually ends up in some sort of pain or discomfort, um, <laughs> and, and then you know you just move on because he had a memory yeah. that was was incredible. Do you have yeah. any, uh, any specific memory of, of Gordy uh, a, as a player? Yeah. yeah. Well, how much time do we have on this interview? Because I got a lot of them. <laughs> but anyway, uh, you know, we we roomed together for a couple of years, Gordy and I. And he would we would talk a bit, you know, and he'd say, Larry, I don't know why I do what I do on the ice. He says, I just do it. He says, I don't mean to do it. You know? <laughs> and it was just a reaction more than anything, you know. And where that come from? And it was a reaction, and he could back the reaction up. Like you see, some guys would chop somebody, and then we say, "Whoops, what did I do here?" Mm-hmm. Gordy, he, he would do it, and uh, he could back it up. Whatever, whatever he did, you know. But uh, he had an amazing um, philosophy. I don't know if if you know what the, the Lou Fontanato mm-hmm. fight where Gordy, yeah, right. Gordy hit him in New York, and you know Rudy. Really got him a good shot, you know, broke his nose and cheekbone and whatever. And so I heard quite a few people say to Gordy, you know, what about that, Gordy? And Gordy just say, well, it's better him than I. You know, right. and that was kind of his attitude. It was a great response, you know. And some guys say, well, he got what he deserved or whatever. But Gordy says, no, it's better him than I. And so way, way we went on to the next next question. Right. But, uh, oh, yeah, I see. I saw Gordy. In Edmonton, a, a guy, particularly if somebody would run at Mark, he would just be livid. When he was on, when Mark was playing defense later on, Gordy was on the bench and Mark was on the ice. Gordy never took his eyes off. Mm-hmm. Uh, not so much with Marty because Marty was bigger and he could, you know, hand, protect himself a little more. But this fellow took a run at at Mark on the ice, and Gordy was on the ice. Mark was playing defense and Gordy's playing forward, so Gordy. This, it was just instinct. He turned around and cross-checked this guy right up around the neck. And his Gordy's stick just exploded. The guy went down. Gordy skates to the bench, throws his stick on the bench. He was using, let's say, a coho. I don't even know what it was because he usually used a Northland. Mm-hmm. He says, where's my goddamn Northland? And he gets it back. So then we're in bed in room at night, and it was late. I was half asleep, and Gordy's flurry. And I said, what? And he says, do you know the Northland rep for the hockey sticks? And I said, yeah, he's in Minnesota. And he says, will you call him tomorrow? And I said, sure. I said, I'll give you a number. I says, why do you want to talk to him? He says, well, I want him to get me a new order of sticks. And I want the wood from my stick to come from the trees on the outside of the grove, not in the middle. And I hmm. said, well, why? And he says, well, on the outside of the grove, the wind whips the trees the grain should be closer together and the stick would be stronger. Wow. <laughs> I said, Gordy, go to sleep. <laughs> Can you imagine somebody, because he was so upset that his stick shattered that he wanted to get a stick that was uh, had more strength and whip in it. So, wow, that is an who, interesting story. Yeah, who else would think of that? No, absolutely. <laughs> At 2.30 in the morning. <laughs> You know, anyway, yeah. Speaking of uh, of some rough play, the, the hockey was changing, as you know, in the early 70s with the success of the Philadelphia Flyers and the rapid expansion in hockey. You had a lot of, uh, for lack of a better term, goon hockey players. Mm-hmm. The Houston Arrows were a tough team that did not employ 
goon players, all your tough guys, which was a good percentage of your team, could uh, play and scrap if needed. When you think back at those battles, particularly I was interviewing Rick Smith recently about the 1974 playoffs, a very, very physical. Billy Goldthorpe came up for that, um, along with, um, you know, the... the, the Gordy, you, Gordy Gallant was there. Gordy, yeah. That's what I was looking for, Gordy Gallant. Yeah, Gordy uh, Gallant can you talk yeah. a little bit about those battles with, with Minnesota? Because there were some tough games there. Yeah. You know, the, the whole thing, and I know Bill Deneen didn't like it at all, you know, what Minnesota did and then uh, Birmingham did it too. And I don't know. I just think that as a coach, that has to be a hard way to, to coach a team. If You know, like Bill's philosophy was we'll have skill and toughness together, but we're not going to go and do this other stuff, you know, and whatever. So I don't know. I didn't. I think a lot of that's gone out of hockey today. Mm-hmm. And it, it, better, it's, it, it, the game's much better for it. You know, like if you watch Winnipeg and – the, the Jets and the Arrows playing at the time. You know, who would you sooner watch that, or did you want to go to Birmingham or to Minnesota at the time? Right. You know, I, I just don't. I, I think that's a part of the sport that. Well, I, I think now it's not even in the sport, so it, it tells you that that's not what what the game should be. Well, you mentioned the Winnipeg Jets, uh, the the Swedes, and Bobby Hall, uh, a good rivalry rivalry there as well. Also, uh, a strong franchise. Talk a little bit about that team because they were much different uh real european influence and of course you know having bobby hall and they had a lot of depth just like you guys they had a lot of skill and speed and you guys could be pretty tough with them physically as well talk a little bit about the the uh the rivalry with the winnipeg jets yeah you know they they were more of a one-line team in a way not to take away anything from their, their other lines but you know, Bobby Hall, he's a world-class hockey player, you know, and different style than Gordy completely. Like, Gordy wasn't the guy who'd skate down the ice and blast a puck and, you know, and, and score goals to the degree that Bobby did. But Bobby was such a huge part of that team, you know, mm-hmm. that without him, I don't think that whole team and that line would have been, would have been you know, what, what they were. He was just, you know, he was the best player in the world. I mean, it was him and Bobby Orr at that time. Right. So he was, uh, he's a guy that can completely dominate a game and, and, and win a game for you. So, and then, you know, they have to check Bobby a little closer than the other guys and left, you know, a little open ice for other players. But, you know, they had a, they had a great, great team. And, you know, they kind of, they changed the, the game for a better part, for a better word. Like they was more skill, quickness, and whatever. Mm-hmm. And Glenn Sather, he used to call me when he was coaching general manager of the Oilers. And he said, Larry, the two teams I patterned the Oilers after won the Jets and, you know, how they would regroup and circle back and, you know, and pass the puck around. And he says, and your team in Houston, you know, he used to ask me what we did and what made the team successful. So mm-hmm. those were the two teams in the WHA that Glenn Sather patterned the, the Oilers after. And it's certainly which, which uh, is quite a compliment. Yeah. Great compliment, and it certainly uh, worked out well. Another uh, guy you mentioned earlier was Mark Tardif. Uh, talk a little bit about the, the Nordiques of that time, also a team that was uh, very offensive-minded with Real Cloutier, Mark Tardif, Chris Bordlow, and a team that you uh, – and they had Rajon Uhl the year that you guys beat yep. them in, in yep. 1975 yep. in the playoffs. Talk a little yep. bit about the, the Nordiques of that era. Yeah, well, that you know, that was a team. Like, I guess when I talk about Winnipeg and Houston, you could put the Nordiques in that category too. They had some really skilled hockey players, and it was probably the way the game has evolved now. That's more the way the game is is played. They had uh, Richard Brodeur in in goal, and J.C. Trombley on on defense. You know, and Reggie Reggie Hull and Mark Tardy. Buddy Cloutier, so you know they had a heck of a hockey team, an entertaining team team to watch too. So that's you know I think that's what the sports is really you know about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we played we played them in the, the following year and won the Alco Cup right in Quebec City. Yeah, right. And, and, yeah, loaded team. Uh, you know, Serge yeah. Bernier yeah. as well. So yeah, Serge, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, great and, hockey player. And they would go on. So who is that? You you faced off against everybody in WHA as you were there for all six years. of The Houston franchise. Yeah. Uh, who was the uh, the toughest 
center to defend. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Serge Bernier com- comes comes to mind as a guy who played another guy, Andre Lacroix, who was mm-hmm. always productive. You know, he's right up at the top of the scoring every year. Um, he, for whatever reason, didn't get on a, a lot of championship teams, but boy, you look at his record year after year, and I don't think there's anybody in the, in the league better than him. Right. You know, and then we had, Minnesota had Davy Keon. They had that line of Johnny McKenzie, uh, Davy Keon, and uh, uh, Mike Antonovich. That was a, a, a strong line. You know, they played they played really well. So that those are the centers that in, in Serge Bernier, and he would, he was tough. Those are the guys that I kind of remember as being, you know difficult to play against. Mm-hmm. Larry, during that time, uh, I would get the hockey news and mm-hmm. you were in the hockey news every week because of the ads for the Canadian Hockey School. Mm-hmm. It's something you founded and talk a little bit, when did you, uh, when did you create that and why? And it certainly became incredibly successful with a, a lot of, a uh, lot of history behind it. I know you've eventually sold it, but talk a little bit about how that all started. Um, you know, it's, it started in a little community just north of Penticton, about eight, ten miles, and they put summer ice in for some reason. And there was one, uh, maybe one or two or three rinks in the world that had summer ice. That was in 1961, I think it was, somewhere around there. And uh, so we used to go up and just and uh, scrimmage a couple times a week, kind of stay in shape and have, have some fun. So then eventually... There was a school down in North Dakota, and I can't remember the name. International Hockey School, yeah. That was the first hockey school that I ever remember being in. So I think we were probably second or third. Davey Keon, uh, uh, let's see, Bobby Orr, Mike Walton, Bobby Orr had a school. Davey Keon had a school in Toronto. But we were probably the third or fourth school in the world to start up in 1963. It just started from... A couple of years prior, as I said, you know, going out for, you know, scrimmaging. But then we thought, you know, there was a real need for, you know, a little more instruction. So we started that at that time. Mm-hmm. And it grew from 30 people to, I think the last we, we ran it, there was something like 2,500 2, people from like 14, 15 different countries here in, in, in Penticton. Wow. <laughs> and, it, and it's continued on to this day. And one of the things that really helped us is that, you know, I knew so many of the, the players who were playing the game at the time, and we really concentrated on having some of the top NHL players come in and, and, and instruct. And, and it wasn't just a guest thing for us. You didn't come in and sign autographs. You went on the ice and worked with the kids and, you know, and become part of the whole program. So that really helped us, you know, be successful and, and Wayne Gretzky helped us a lot. His mm-hmm. brother Keith Keith was at our hockey camp for quite a few years as, as a coach, and Wayne used to recommend it to the people in Los Angeles. So that that helped us helped us a lot. And uh, one other thing, we started video analysis in 1967. Wow! And, and there was no video. The Seattle Totems had a video machine. It was a reel to reel tape thing, and mm-hmm. <laughs> so we we rented it from them and. We had guys like Cesar Maniego here, Bobby Clark, and we used to give, you know, video lessons. And video was never used; wasn't even close to being used in hockey at that time. So, we tried to be a bit innovative and, um, you know, sure. try to do do thing, think things like that. And we had a lady, Laura Stam. I'm not sure if you've heard oh, yeah, of her. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for, she's from East Chester, New York. She was really the person who got power skating going, and so she. We brought her out to Penticton for probably 20 years. Wow. She came out with their boys, and then she used to have NHL camps here in Penticton, and we had a lot of the top players, Mel Bridgman, Kim Claxton. In Philadelphia, Keith Allen used to send out guys. Uh, Don Selesky came out, and different different guys come out for skating, so that really really helped us. And, and also the Hockey News was a great source of advertising for us. We used to take a fairly good-sized ad in there each year, and... And so then, you know, it grew from that, you know, from 30-some kids to over 2,500. And uh, I was there, I think, for 40, 40-some years. And it's still going. It's very, very successful now, um, you know, as, as, a, as a 
well, probably it's probably the oldest hockey, continually running hockey camp in the world. Uh, yeah, I, I would say so. It's uh, yeah. as I said back in those days. <laughs> It was so synonymous with the the hockey news. You get the hockey news, you you're yeah. going to see Larry London in, in the camp ad. Uh, going yeah. back uh, real quick to first of all, you didn't really hear about video until Roger Nielsen came along. So yeah. you guys were yeah. about a yeah. decade yeah. ahead of the curve yeah. here. Yeah. Um, yeah. But going back to your final year in the WHA, it's kind of a sad year because that Houston franchise was essential to the WHA. It was a marquee franchise, good yeah. fan support but runs out of uh, financial viability when the team does not get into the NHL in 77. So during that last year, Larry, uh, what's your thought process? You, are you basically assuming this is the end for the franchise? Are you ready to wind down your career? What's your mindset in 1977-78? Well, it's, 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 that's a very good question. Uh, during the year, we, we thought everything's fine, you know, and our owner was you know, we were stable and we didn't have, uh, you know, the years that we had before, but we had a very competitive team. And uh, that the owner was trying to buy, I think it was Kansas City or one of those teams. He was, he kind of jumped the gun. He thought he was going to get in by himself or whatever. So that didn't work. Had he would have stayed one more year, I'm sure it would have, um, you know, would have been, been taken in with the NHL teams, you know, because we, yeah. we had a phenomenal building and it was really sad for me to see this happen. Not so much for myself, but especially for Bill Deneen, he'd put his heart and soul into this and all of a sudden the rugs pulled out from under him. The house going to Hartford really hurt us. I'm sure if they would have st stayed in Houston that last year, we would have continued on. But anyway, for whatever reason, they, they went to Houston and that left a void for us. So then it was right in, it was right up until June. I know I was away fishing and I called Bill and he said, it's just not going to happen, you know? So, um, yeah, it was sad because I think it could have been a, a good franchise. Mm -hmm. It was a beautiful building and, uh, you know, good spam support. But anyway, it, uh, it didn't happen. And Bill called me and asked me to go to, to, um, Hartford with him. And I, I had just sort of decided at that point, I would have stayed if the team would have stayed there. Mm -hmm. But uh, I decided I wanted to finish my degree at Arizona State University, so I said you know, to my wife, we just decided to go back and finish, spend the winter in Arizona and uh, finish up the degree, and then we moved back up to Canada eventually to Penticton. For, we've been here for since then, actually. It was about 1981, I think. Right. So looking back at the Houston Arrows, did you get a chance to keep in contact with some of your ex-teammates from that era? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I was I was down in Dallas last year, and they have a, a Hockey Hall of Fame or History of Hockey in Houston mm -hmm. in, in Dallas, and they invited me down. Uh, Terry Waskowski was there, John Gray was there, and a lot of the the uh, Dallas Stars players were there, and they un unveiled. They asked me to cut the ribbon for the uh, hockey history of hockey in Houston. It's very well done. And uh, the uh, Tom Gillardi, he's done a great job in Houston. There's a, a number of rinks there that the Dallas Stars, you know, mm -hmm. own and sponsor. And then, and then along, so they've got the history of Houston way back into the 30s. There was hockey, Rice University, in different places at that time. So that. So that's that was the last time I really was in contact with guys on a you know on a personal basis. But when John Shella passed away a while back, I talked to a lot of the players at, at that time, and uh, also met with Ted Taylor and his wife in Seattle or not in Seattle, but in Vancouver at the opening of the Canucks schedule this year. So we watched. Oh, the game wow! How is uh, how is Ted Taylor these days? He's good. He looks great. You know, he still has his. His his ranch in uh, Oak Lake, Manitoba. He's active and enjoys it. You know, he looks he looks great. Looks like he could put the skates on it. <laughs> he was uh, obviously a talented player, a leader, but uh, tough as nails as well. Oh yeah, was he ever? Yeah, a great competitor. Yeah. Uh, Larry, so uh, you put your business degree to good uh, use, and of course, managing the, the, the hockey camp and everything like that. Uh, did you get a chance to uh, watch hockey 
today. Right now, we're, as we interview you, you were in the middle of the NHL playoffs. Uh, what, I was curious if you're watching hockey now occasionally and what your impression is of today's game. Yeah. No, I do watch it. And uh, uh, <laughs> I watch it and I'm amazed at the, at the skill and the, the speed and, and the, the way the players pass the puck and anticipate somebody moving and the puck goes there before the player gets there. It's, it's incredible. Like the, mm. it, it's light years different from when we played and, you know, and, and uh, the, the speed of it and then the, the size, like six, one, no, this is one, six, two. So I was considered a bigger player at the time. Right now, I'd be just average in the in right. the weight and the size, you know, and the the speed. So no, I think it's it's um, you know it's progress leaps and bounds. And I guess the the limit test is look at how many fans show up for those games. Those buildings are sold out, you know. Right. It's in Las Las Vegas is a great example, you know. It is. I was talking to a, a reporter today on on another issue, and I just said. It is absolutely incredible. I was sitting there with my wife uh, watching a game a few nights ago. I'm like, yeah. the, the, these guys have to make decisions in a split second, and they're executing, as you said, just the the, the passing, the speed, the the physicality. The game's always been physical, but these collisions are are pretty violent because you oh, you, you you don't have that center. Yeah, red line there. You get the you get little you guys getting a full head of steam and taking a pass, and um, which which reminds me, just as we we wind down here and again, we appreciate the time very much, Larry. Is uh, boy, you played a long time. You had a, you had a long career. Uh, any injuries, uh, lingering effects, or anything like that? You you see? No, no. I was very fortunate. You know, I didn't miss very few games, and uh, no, I'm uh, healthy. I'm eighty or seventy eight years old, and no, I'm healthy as can be. Uh, Larry, again, we uh, really appreciate the time today, and uh, you had a uh, one heck of a career. You were certainly uh, in the legends of the WHA. You were right there among the, among, among the best of the best, and we appreciate the time very much today, and we hope to uh, have a chance to talk to you again uh, down the road. Yeah, well, I enjoyed our, our chat, Mark. Thank you for including me. And, one, you know, one fellow we, we didn't talk about was uh, Jack Stanfield. He was very instrumental in the whole... Jack was not only... I met him, you know, I met him actually for work. I was working uh, between hockey experiences. I was working for Fox. And at the time, he was working oh, yeah. for, for yeah. Prime Sports down in yeah. Texas. And so I had a chance yeah. to meet him there and, and meet him again some years later. But uh, he was. Uh, so he went. He went. He played. Obviously, he became a broadcaster. He became a big time mm-hmm. executive in television. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. What? Yeah, I stay. Yeah, I stay in touch with Jack. You know, regularly. Yeah. So mm-hmm. we're. Yeah, and we were. He played the first year, first two years, I guess. Yeah. So. Yeah, what a career he had. He went from yeah. no. the color mm-hmm. commentator to uh, mm-hmm. one of the, the most. Uh, uh, high-powered executives in television, and I think yeah, he, he mm-hmm, managed yeah. uh, Fox's international uh, efforts uh, back in the early 2000s. So, yeah, you're right. Yeah. A, uh, a very mm-hmm. remarkable career. Like a lot of those zeros yeah. guys, boy, you look back yeah. and what they've done since, uh, very, very impressive. Yeah, no, it was anyway, yeah. No, Mark, I, I, pre- I enjoyed chatting with you, and thank you for thinking about me. Thanks, Larry. Talk to you again okay. soon. Thank you. Hopefully. Bye now. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast. Be sure to visit us at ProHockeyAlumni.org.